This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in. So we're doing this series called Back to Basics, where we are revisiting about 12 touchstone self-defense cases that Don West and I have explored over the past few years. And we're taking a new look at them, focusing on the key elements of self-defense, and that is that the defender had a reasonable belief that there was an imminent threat of severe great bodily harm or injury. And along with that, we're looking at these four precursor elements that are uh, significant to any self-defense claim, and that includes the location of the shooting, the lawfulness of the defender's actions, the first aggressor, who was it, and finally the duty to retreat, whether or not the law requires it. And in the process of looking through these cases, we've invited our friend and CCW Safe contributor, Steve Moses, to join us. Steve's a well-regarded firearms instructor. And the more I talk to him, the more I learn. And I'm beginning to believe his knowledge of firearms is infinite. And he's offered a lot of great insight into the tactical considerations that are apparent in these cases. And he can tell us what the defenders did right, what they did wrong in regards to handling their firearms. And so we're going to revisit the Ted Wafer case, which is one of the most important cases that we've looked at. It's a home defense case. We refer to it frequently in our podcast. It pops up in my articles a lot too. And it's interesting that during the sentencing phase of this trial, uh, the prosecutor indicated that he felt that Ted Wafer used this weapon that he had, the tactical shotgun, a Mossberg 12-gauge pistol grip tactical shotgun, like a toy. And uh, reviewing it, this case, this time with Steve Moses' input, uh, we find that uh, the prosecutor maybe was exaggerating, but that the way Wafer handled the weapon left a lot to be desired. And so we ended up having a conversation about that for about half an hour before we got into the the basics. So I thought I'd split that out as its own podcast. Uh, we'll get into the legal elements in next week's episode. But for now, here's my conversation with Don West and our guest, Steve Moses, on the tactical considerations of the Ted Wayne case. Thanks again for listening. Steve, since you've uh, joined the family and we've been having such a good time, including you in on these podcasts, yeah, I want to go back through these dozen or so cases, revisit them. And I think we'll find that, uh, Don, like today we're going to talk about the Ted Wafer case and there are still appeals going on uh, for a case that was, you know, the shooting happened in 2013 and the trial happened uh, within a couple of years of that and now we're in a completely different decade and 
there are still legal wranglings going on just to speak to how long these things can can go and um yeah steve your experience uh as a firearms instructor and as a veteran of law enforcement gives uh incredibly practical insight to our our listeners on not just where did the defenders go wrong legally but also tactically where they made mistakes that got them in trouble and i think you'll tell us that ted wafer made a number of those uh yes i will cool well let me let me set up this case real quick and and don i think you'll agree with me this is one of the most uh, heartbreaking cases you and i've looked at because you've got a defender who uh I, I think it's not a bad guy made a very understandable mistake in extraordinary circumstances and is now a convicted murderer. Yes. A guy in his mid fifties, just kind of living his life, living in a suburb of, of Detroit, his neighborhood over the time that he had lived in it had be taken a bit of a turn for the worse. He became concerned about home protection and bought a firearm. Um, with good intentions. The idea was to protect himself in the event of being attacked in his home. And I guess that's really the factual and the legal predicate that started this, uh, this case. And of course, as you said earlier, uh, it was now seven, it's been about seven years since the incident itself. No, what? Yeah, I think November, so. I think it's, yeah, yes. November of 2013? Years. The trial, yeah. there's been a couple of appeals. Uh, I think his sentence has now been affirmed on appeal and his convictions for sure. There's still an issue or two floating around, one which could have some impact if he prevails on the length of his sentence. But I don't think there's anything left in the appellate courts that could uh, have any likelihood of getting him a new trial. So he's in yep. prison and likely to stay there for the foreseeable future. And Steve, Don mentioned that uh, we have a guy here who is, he'd lived, he'd bought that house t about 20 years before in this Dearborn Heights uh, neighborhood outside of Detroit. Within that time, the crime in the area had raised uh, significantly. Uh, and his solution, he said during trial actually, that he'd considered getting security put into his house but couldn't afford it he made an investment instead in a mossberg pistol grip 12 gauge shotgun uh, i'm curious from your perspective about uh, his choice of that weapon for home protection well it would absolutely not be a first second or even third choice for me uh the reason is is that it's a, a weapon that is designed, many people believe it's designed to be pointed almost from the hip rather than aimed. It does not have a buttstock, so the person owning it is, for the most part, unable to bring the receiver up and line up the back of the receiver with the sights in order to confirm that they're properly aligned with the target unless they just physically hold it in front of their face and... Uh, it's also a pretty powerful weapon, and uh, it's just very subject uh, to being mishandled by people that are not really dialed in 
about how it should be used. I, it's, you know, it's seen as, you know, pretty, pretty sexy and tactical in a lot of movies. And people will go like, oh, well, that's a shotgun and it's in a real small portable package. But the benefits that it offers to homeowners for home defense purposes, in my opinion, uh, are not nearly as good as a conventional service handgun or in this case, even a conventionally stocked shotgun. Okay, interesting. And the the problems that can arise if someone's not trained with the weapon, that will come out to play later. And, and when we get to that point, we'll, we'll circle around to it. Okay. So uh, some folks might remember this if they've been members of CCWSA for a while and been keeping up with our uh, podcasts and our articles. We referenced the Ted Wafer case a lot. This is the shooting of Renisha McBride. And it took place late in the night, actually the early morning hours, Ted Wafer, uh, who lived alone in this home in Dearborn Heights, Michigan, uh, had fallen asleep in front of the television. He had taken his pants off earlier and hung it on the bathroom door, left his cell phone in those pants, uh, then fell asleep on his recliner. And it was uh, early in the morning. He's awoken to violent pounding on the uh front door and the side door of his house and he got up he said that he wanted to call the police but he couldn't find his phone uh, what he was able to find is his mossberg tactical shotgun and during a lull in the pounding which his lawyer said at trial was shaking the floorboards of his house he said that he didn't couldn't conceive that it was only one person making this noise so during a lull in the pounding, he goes to the front door, he opens it up on the other side of this screen door that was on the outside of his door was this uh, dark figure standing on his porch. The, the, he, the rifle is fired. Uh, he claims to police that he didn't know that there was a round in there. Uh, he expresses that it was an accident, but you know, Don, you and I and Steve, we've talked just moments ago about how uh, an accident is manslaughter and it's not self-defense. And that haunted him in his trial. And, and now to mm -hmm. turn the tables here on the other side of the door was Renisha McBride. She was a recent high school grad a cheerleader. Uh, she was uh, drunk. She had been drinking vodka with a friend that night. She was high. Uh, she had been smoking pot and she had been involved in, you know, sometime not long after midnight, a single car crash or a two car crash. She, she crashed into a parked car because she was intoxicated. She injured herself, it is believed, and had spent a couple of hours wandering around this neighborhood. It's suspected that she thought that the house was either her house or the house of a friend or at the very least she was looking for help does that kind of uh sum up what your recollection is of this case don it does the at the moment the shot was fired i don't know whether she had uh, done anything to gain any any type of access to the interior of the home i think not i think the screen door was locked and remained so 
there was some description in the media about her pushing on it, but I did not get the impression from any of the sources that she had successfully pushed through the door or in any way had actually gained um, access to the house. Uh, Steve, since you're familiar with the, the Mossberg, I am curious since we talked about how uh, Mr. Wafer mentioned to the police that he didn't think there was a round in it. Do, can you explain, uh, don't mean to put you on the spot, but can you explain how that weapon is loaded and what the steps would have to be to actually chamber a shell? Oh, absolutely. Uh, with that Mossberg, I'm sure that was a Mossberg 500, uh, you would have to take a shot shell, you would load it from the bottom by pushing it through the loading port up to the point where it's engaged by the shell stop in the magazine tube, and then uh, racking the slide, that is taking the slide in your support hand and bringing it rearwards with enough force to force it all the way to the end, and then forward, that causes the shell to come back on the lifter, the bolt picks it up, and then that puts it in the chamber and prepares it to fire. Is it roughly anal uh, analogous to loading a, a semi-automatic handgun that you insert the magazine and then you rack it to pick off the top shell and put it into the chamber? Uh, similar, similar. It doesn't have a detachable box magazine. The magazine itself is actually a long tube, uh, a cylinder mm -hmm. that goes under the barrel and uh, you, you basically have to put those in uh, one at a time. And of course, you know, shot shells uh, it's probably a two and three quarter inch uh, shot shell. Uh, that's a relatively uh, large, um, I, I want to say cartridge, that's probably not the right term, but it's, it's, it's much larger than, for instance, like a nine millimeter handgun or most conventional rifle. Of course. I, I guess what I was getting at, it, do you have to rack the gun to get yes. a shell into the chamber? Yes, so that's what's the, when he racking, says the, he, racking the bolt or, you know, okay, rack that shotgun, pump mm. the shotgun, work the slide action. You have to bring it back vigorously enough to where the shot shell is released from that tube, and then when it goes forward, it feeds into the chamber. Yeah, so it doesn't break like a, you know, a, a typical standard shotgun. It does where you not. Can insert the... So, in other words, when Wafer told the police, if, if he wasn't lying about it, um, when he said he didn't know it was loaded... What it what it mean what it must have meant then is that he had put uh, some shell a, a shell or shells in it had racked it at some point in time, but had just forgotten that he had done it, or he he was lying about it. But but it, there's no way to get around in the chamber without actually going through the steps that you've described. You would have to go through those physical steps, and uh, under stress, I guess it would be relatively easy. Uh, to forget, for, excuse me, forget perhaps what you did in preparing something in order to go and use it to, you know, ostensibly defend yourself. I don't know, but it's a very, you know, conscious, uh, oh, how should I say, significant motion that must be done with the shotgun in order to get that shot shell in there. It's not something mm -hmm. that's done casually. But he, he could have done it uh, an hour, a day, or a week, or a month before. He could have and, done it. And just... He could have done it exactly as you said, or he may have even actually racked it when he picked it up 
and simply didn't recall or alternatively uh, mm -hmm. he was just not yeah. telling the truth. Don't know. Yeah. That's a very confusing aspect of the case, unfortunately one which probably directed more than any other single fact the, uh, uh, the path it took in the legal system, I think. Uh, it's very common, Don, for people when they have uh, negligent discharges, uh, we prefer to refer to them in the farm training industry as negligent discharges as opposed to an accidental discharge uh, because operator error was involved at, at, at some point. And uh, it's very common when guns are fired either in a manner such as this or they uh, discharge into something else, uh, the persons often say, oh, I didn't know it was, I didn't know it was loaded. Sorry, Sean, that was a bit of a side trip, but I am fascinated from Steve's perspective, you know, how those things take place to put you in that situation, like whether, you know, Wafer knew it and lied about it, didn't remember that he'd done it before, or even under the stress of the moment may have done it and not even realized exactly what he was doing, especially if he'd had very little experience with that. I mean, well, uh, to, not only do I not mind the side trip, Don, but I'd like to take it a little bit further, actually, because, you know, Steve, I said something to you uh, last podcast that elicited no reaction from you, at least no verbal reaction. And, and in that same podcast, you had made a recommendation that if you're a concealed carrier and it's, it's legal and, and safe for you to do so, you recommend folks carry, right? Uh, that's correct if it's safe to do so and you're responsibly trained and you understand, you know, all of the potential negatives that can go along with, you know, carrying a handgun. And I mean, and there are many. I mean, people leave their guns in restaurants. They leave them in bathrooms. They leave them in cars. It's a, it's a huge responsibility. It really takes a significant commitment on a concealed carrier's part if they are going to indeed carry, but if they do, they're going to be far more prepared to deal with, you know, a, an incident where just really nothing short of, you know, having the ability to use deadly force is going to be sufficient yeah. to work. Well, and here's why, and here's why I brought that up because as a, as in the objective observer uh, and somebody who's analyzed so many self-defense cases and who's been a part of the legal defense for a number of self-defense cases for most of them i can say this uh with some sincerity and accuracy for most of them if the gun had not been there uh, i think everyone gets out of the situation okay and and nobody dies that's not always true there's some very key cases where uh, i think it was completely obvious that the shooter needed to defend himself with deadly force uh, but after talking to you more I, I realized what I meant is that if the defender was competent with the weapon properly trained and uh, in this case even knew the readiness of the weapon that nobody gets killed well, uh, and, that's that, that's true, and I'll even go so much further to say, in re reference to the readiness, uh, even if your gun is always ready, 
safe gun handling is just key. I mean, that is so critically important. And uh, in my opinion, a wafer violated two of the primary, you know, farm safety rules is one, he had his finger on the trigger. And two, he allowed, well, actually maybe three, he allowed that muzzle to cover something that he wasn't willing to shoot. And he was not sure of his target. And it also goes what lies around it or behind it and everything. But he basically violated three safety rules. And even if he'd had a loaded shotgun, uh, had he not, uh, we wouldn't be talking about this today. Right. And so, and so real quick, just tactically, one is, you know, how, it, what position of readiness, if you've purchased the weapon to have for home defense, what's the right way to keep it? Uh, and, and that may be a subjective question. And then two, what's the wisdom of taking what you think is, if he's telling us the truth, an unloaded weapon into a confrontation with a potential home intruder? I really can't answer that other than some people might believe that just basically displaying uh, the weapon itself is going to be significant or sufficient enough to deal with the problem. I believe, you know, you and I had a conversation one time about uh, how that if you're not willing to actually shoot somebody, you really shouldn't be carrying a gun because in many instances, uh, yeah, maybe that gun might get you out of a sticky situation, but it may very likely have negative consequences, including in this particular case where someone was inadvertently killed. And the other one is, is I always kind of have to look at this as a two-way exchange. Sometimes I think we forget to look at these things from the perspective of the criminal offender. And if a criminal offender is intent on committing a crime and they are suddenly faced with the threat of deadly force, well, they're going to do everything in their own power and in their mind to defend themselves. And if indeed they decide to do that and you weren't prepared to use that gun, it may very well end up in, you know, you being, you know, seriously injured or worse. Sure. And we've, we recently looked at the Kyle Rittenhouse case and there's some suspicion that uh, a couple of people approached this young kid who was carrying an AR-15 style rifle because they didn't believe that uh, he would use it or was competent to use it. And we talked about the Andrew Weiss case where a poorly executed defensive display encouraged the perceived attacker to challenge him to go ahead and shoot me. And he tried to reach for the gun and forced Andrew uh, Weiss's hand uh, or Alexander, Alexander Weiss's hand and, and then ended up mm -hmm. in a, a shooting that was... Well and let's not forget the recent case in in Austin. Is it Garrett Foster? Is that his name? Mm -hmm. um, That's right. The, the fellow that was protesting, and he has the um, AR-15 style weapon. It might actually have been an AK-47. I can't remember exactly what it was. His an AK-47 style. Was, but yeah. And, and the um, the army officer who's moonlighting as an Uber driver. Um, is caught in this protest and uh, Foster approaches him with his weapon and from all accounts uh, apparently did something that made the driver of the car believe that it was being pointed at him. It may have simply been poor handling on the part of, of Foster but it uh, certainly created that well-founded fear of imminent violence and 
and the driver responded with uh, lethal force. Foster died, and um, as far as I know, no no charges have been filed, and it certainly doesn't seem likely that they will be under that legal but tragic scenario. And, and so we've uh, established multiple cases here where the poor handling of a firearm uh, and the display of that firearm without the intent to use it lawfully can cause life or death consequences for either the defender mm -hmm. or the perceived attacker. And uh, one, one more operational question for Steve. Yeah, um, sure. Since we're talking about how it all took place at the doorway, um, does that Mossberg pistol grip shotgun have an external safety as far as you know, Steve? It does. Steve? It, and, does. And it has a push-button so, safety on the top. So that means at some point in time, Wafer not only chambered a, a shell, but he uh, manipulated the safety in, at some point in time, either by taking it off or putting it on and taking it off, or went to the door thinking that he had an unloaded gun but had the safety off. That whole thing just doesn't make any sense to me from a, a responsible firearm operator. Uh, one thing I need you to would add know here, that stuff, wouldn't you? I, I need to add here before we. I, I know I'm really the one really taking this off in the deep weeds. Is many shotguns are not drop safe. Uh, what that means is that even if the safety is engaged, if the shotgun is dropped, they can still fire. And so a lot of uh, shotgun instructors and uh, and and users, uh, they make it a point that the shotgun stays unloaded in terms of the shotgun is never stored with a round in the chamber. And when it is necessary to grab that shotgun for a, a perceived emergency situation, you go ahead, rack the chamber. Uh, the safety may or may not be left off uh, because the gun is not drop safe. And to that end, it's, you know, more important than ever that you uh, comply with all of the, the, the safety rules and regulations. And so I just know a lot of guys that know a lot about this particular stuff that may start taking issues with this and all this other stuff. And uh, just, you know, want to know is that, yeah, we, 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 we understand what they're saying. We know what they're talking about. But in this particular case, uh, I can't really say what his his motive was if he thought that shotgun was unloaded uh I, I don't know why he would be you know then walking around necessarily with the you know the, the safety off mm -hmm. and, and if he had if he had chambered uh, a shell a week or a month earlier and had stored it like that that was also a violation of the safety in my safely opinion, operating that particular in my opinion it's not drop. necessarily a violation of the safety rule but with that particular system i just do not think that it's a good idea to have a long gun of any type you know just sitting around with a shell in it and uh not being on safe so let's say for instance that same mm, shotgun that mm -hmm. Uh, I decided I had to do something. Uh, I decided, okay, uh, I'm going to go ahead and I need, actually, I wouldn't have gone to the door. I would have stayed in my room, 
I would have chambered a shell in that shotgun and I probably would have left that safety off. And as soon as I decided to set that shotgun down for even a second, I would go ahead and I would put that safety on. And then when it was time to store that shotgun, I would go ahead and uh, clear that chamber and uh, make sure that there was not a shell in it. And here's and here's one of the real weaknesses in the case is that she was an unarmed girl for all intents. And, and so the severity of her threat, I think, you know, Steve, you tell me, I don't think Wafer ever had a real opportunity to assess what kind of threat she posed once he opened the door. It was dark. He, he saw a, a shadow of a figure. Uh, I completely agree. You know, I've given some thought to this while we were talking, and I've tried to kind of play that scenario in my head of what this might look like from the perspective of both players. And so yeah. uh, he hears this noise. He is scared to death. He grabs a shotgun because he thinks it's unsafe. Uh, he then makes the statement, it was them or me. I wasn't going to cower in my house. I don't know for sure that it was actually his in initial intent to go out there and uh, engage that person. Or as he got closer, he may very well have heard in her voice that this was a feminine voice and it was in distress. Uh, there's no telling uh, what all she may have said or he may have heard, but there may have been a reason that caused him to think, well, this may be legit. If that's the case, and he goes over there, and he opens the door, as the door opens, it's also, you know, uh, within the realm of possibility that uh, McBride, uh, I believe, wasn't her blood level uh, content like 0.22, which is like three times the, uh, or nearly three times uh, the legal driving limit, uh, plus... And, and that's not counting her marijuana. Her marijuana, plus, plus a possible head injury. Even without the head injury, uh, we, 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 we can at least assume that this person was impaired in some way. And I can imagine if I were her, and I'm trying to get in this house, and I'm injured, and I'm confused, when that door opens, I might very well be of the opinion that I'm being granted, uh, here's a place I can go. Uh, the fact, I'm not sure uh, where the term came through and whether this is even accurate, that she was trying to push through the door. I'm going to guess that more than likely that screen door uh, opened to the outside. Uh, that is, in order to open up that screen door, uh, you probably would have had to grasp the handle and open it outwards instead of inwards, because that's just the way most of them work. That's the way that key lock is in. So I'm not sure for sh certain that he registered, oh, she's pushing through the door, but as much as she may have just had a really violent uh, reaction, and not necessarily, when I say violent, I'm, I mean uh, rapid, agitated, 
not necessarily one that had any kind of intent whatsoever. And sure, but if go ahead. No, no, yeah, no. I'm just. Okay. I, I can see it. Yeah. Okay. Violent, as in just uh, thrashing about. Yes, thrashing she's about. Uh, hurt and high. And obviously, uh, Mr. Wafer thought that it was unsafe to not have a gun, so he took a gun with him. Uh, I'm speculating, and it's a hundred percent speculation on my part, is that he opens that door and he puts his hand back on the support end of that firearm. Okay, that's a pistol grip shotgun. So in order to hold that shotgun uh, comfortably, uh, basically, and shoot it with any kind of accuracy whatsoever, the gun has to be pretty much held in a horizontal position in aligned with the direct target or the desired point of impact. From what I understand, that round struck her in the head. That kind of suggests to me that it may have been fired from an upward angle. That is, he had the barrel elevated. If he had his finger on the trigger, which is, it's unbelievable uh, how many students that show up for our beginner classes that we make it very clear to them that you may not put your finger on the trigger until your sights are up on aligned with the target or being aligned with the target and you're making the decision to shoot for just fear of negligent discharges. And we have to call them on it and basically drill them on that throughout the class in order to break them of this tendency, which, you know, they don't know any better. They see this, you know, guns carried uh, in this manner on television, in movies, on posters. Uh, it's, just, it's just little kids running around with their fingers on the triggers of guns. Just people don't really realize how dangerous that is. So if he's got his hand is, on, is gripping that shotgun, he's got his finger on the trigger. If he responded, even as if he were startled, then he probably clenched down hard on that shotgun. If you have all four fingers of your support fingers on that grip and your finger on the trigger, it's almost impossible to go ahead and convulse that hand or clench that hand or grip that gun harder without your index finger or your trigger finger also coming with it, which may very well have caused the uh, discharge. And so it's tough to say, I mean, it's, it's what I hear you saying is he had to have that rifle or he had to have that shotgun up and pointed. And then if he had his finger on the trigger and he was uh, shocked and surprised physically by what he found outside that door, then he easily twitches and squeezes off around. He, he, he convulsed that hand. He clenched his hand and he probably was holding that shotgun in an angle that was like maybe 45 degrees with the muzzle end up, which in, since she was struck in the head, you know, I can assume that she was probably at least his height. Uh, I mean, there's a possibility that, uh, you know, he was much taller and she was much shorter, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that's a, a good uh, explanation for what may have happened without saying for sure that that's exactly what happened. All right, friends, that's our conversation for today. Thanks again for listening in. Next time, we're going to get into the basics, back to basics on the legal elements of self-defense in the 
Ted Waverkays. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. <laughs>